Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. These podcast interviews are hugely fun to do, and every now and then I get the bonus opportunity to sit down and talk with an old friend. Joining me in our little studio today is the creative force that is T. Uglo. T has built her career exploring the space between technology and art, looking for unexpected ways they can interact. She's written about doubt and about being transgender, and her book, Loud and Proud, is a collection of the most influential and inspiring LGBTQI speeches of all time. And I can tell you from first-hand experience, she is completely incapable of uninteresting conversation. T. Uglo, welcome so much to It's a Long Story. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. This is a funny one for me, actually, because I've done many of these interviews, but this is the first time I've interviewed a very old friend. Well, it's a great privilege to be here in that case. <laughs> well, let's see how I go. Um, you know all my secrets, though, so... <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'll have to be very ethical, won't yes, I? Yes, highly ethical. So, T, what sort of a household were you born into? Um, I was born into a busy household. I'm the eldest of four, um, and I have an academic sort of family, extended family, like all of the people, it's sort of this bustling kind of um, young university filled with sort of young academics in Kent. So my father was a law professor and my mother taught um, English and, and sort of, and they were very academic and they had lots of, all their academic lawyery friends and it was very intellectual and very busy and it was very bustling and there were lots of books around. Um, one of the things that your mother did was uh, she was among the group of people that founded Virago, which was a relatively early feminist press. Yes. Was it a feminist household you grew up in? Presumably. She doesn't describe herself as a feminist. I mean, she is a feminist in, in and of principle, as is my father. So her work is kind of imbued with all of these values. But no, she was, she, she I think, struggles with the idea of being politically feminist. But I think that there's a certain scarring from the, the, the fights, from the, the battles that were occurring in the 70s. She remembers being accused by lesbians of giving sucker to the enemy. Because, <laughs> because she was partnered with a man. Because she's straight. And it's an extraordinary thought. It's like, okay. And then you do look at like a lot of the, the gender battles that are going on at the moment and the kind of fights that are happening at the moment. And you're like, yeah, I can see that similar sort of like that similar level of vitriol and violence, rhetorical violence, certainly exists currently in aspects of my world. But yeah, she was, in all her work, incredibly active and a very important figure, I think, in all of that. How are gender roles kind of regarded in your family of origin? Um, they were traditional. My father played rugby. He was, you know, every, during the rugby season, he'd play rugby. And then um, and on during the summer, he would play cricket. And as you know, that's like an all-day sport. So he would be gone for the whole day. And I'm sure that my mother kind of partly appreciated not having any of us around um, when we weren't all around. But... The rest of it felt quite traditional. I remember being sort of quite a latchkey kid and we talk about those things. We talk about all these things now that seem so normal now, like the idea that you would get home from school with your siblings somehow and then you would let yourself into your house and then you would make chocolate sandwiches and watch TV until an adult returned. And that seems normal. A brilliant story. Have I told you the story about the beans? No, I Ever? think so. Oh, okay, well, I'll tell you. It's very quickly. But this is like the, the, the household that we grew up in and the time that we grew up in, in that we didn't even realise that we didn't realise what this story was, which is my dad's a law professor and he used to tell a story for 30 years about culpability and he used to use this great example of me coming in and saying, I'm going to make some beans and him going, fine. And then five minutes later hearing this crack 
very loud crack and running downstairs to discover that I had put the beans on a plate and then put the plate on a hob. <laughs> and then being very surprised when the, the plate had exploded. <laughs> beans and, and, and ceramic everywhere. Um, and quite upset. I was like six years old. And so he would use this for 30 years. And it was quite funny as an example of whether a child or anyone who doesn't understand the consequence of their action can be truly guilty. This year, my sister and I were discussing this because I was like, what age was I? She's like, no, you were six or seven, certainly. And I was like, how on earth was I being allowed to make baked beans on my own? We have small children. There's no way I'm leaving them alone in a room. With the stove. Yeah, you go kick dinner. That's fine. (laughs) And no one's family is weird. That's the point, really. And actually, we come back to this again and again, especially when we're talking about normativity, especially when we're talking about society, especially when we're trying to get into the the weeds of gender, um, sexuality, race, all of these things, which is that where you grow up, that is your normal. Did you have a sense of that as a child, that you were normal? Um, No, that's kind of the point. You work so hard to be normal. There is nothing normal about normal. Hmm. There is only, normal is like what it is. In statistical terms, it's like the, the, the highest point on that curve. So you and your family group will create your own normal. You'll create your own um, sort of normative curve. Mm-hmm. I sat outside that curve in my family. And so I spent an enormous amount of time working my way back into the curve. So your family had normal and you didn't think that you were part of their normal? Well, actually, I just kind of assumed my whole life that I was, that, you that everyone was abnormal and that everyone worked their way back in and that actually if you scratched at everyone, you'd find all these other bits. And then it turned out, as you get older, that first of all, you're really not normal. <laughs> like you're, you're outside of that curve in a way that's perfectly valid. It's just, you've never been able to be in a world where, where that we don't live in a world that allows people to be of difference. It is safer to be the same than it is to be different. So we actually spend all our lives trying to disguise our points of difference. And that will literally come down to think decisions you make every morning about what you're wearing. Are you going to stand out? And I love it when I see groups of teenage girls all wearing exactly the same outfit. And you're mm. like, but why? <laughs> There are so many options. There are so many options that yet you've all gone for cut-off denim shorts, a little crop top with sort of white frills and some white or grey trainers. And you wonder whether they see a significant difference between them, whether they're comparing themselves and they actually see significant difference within their little group. Mm. I mean, all, all the boys at the moment with their beards and you're like, you all look identical. <laughs> okay, I'm face blind, so maybe this is a good point to say. Like, I genuinely don't recognise faces. So I'm going on. Facial hair is quite useful to me, but not if everyone wears it the same. This is right. And I, I share that with you. And um, and I find that these kind of external markers um, can be deceiving. Mm-hmm. Bald men with glasses, just forget about it. It is... Um, it's when we, when, we, when we look at how much time and effort we spend trying to disguise our difference... And then you look at the, the very few things in, in existence that where you cannot disguise your difference. Things like race, things like gender, things like physical disability. That's where you begin to see like the absolute hallmarks of um, oppression and um, discrimination and inequality. Because those are a clear, undisguisable points of difference. And the second you have a group with more power who have a similarity... 
and they they have a point of difference religion mm. you will actually persecute people and and prosecute them to, and if you can't tell the difference you put them in the chair and you waterboard them until they tell you right what you're really trying to do is dis discover there's nothing essentially wrong with that human it's the point of difference you started learning this in the family and then you went to probably one of the most heteronormative environments in the universe, which is the British Boys Grammar School. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I escaped immediately. Yeah, how did that work out for you? Oh, I've made safe spaces everywhere I've gone. How do you do that? I'm lying, cheating, dissembling. Mm. I mean, my life's basically an enormous exercise in pretending that I'm not who I am until you get to such a point where you don't you have lots of different views and you don't really know you actually get very expert in pretending you know <laughs> pretending you are one or something at which point you don't know no longer know who you are at which point it becomes much easier to look at how everyone else does this and not really believe them when they talk about that idea of authentic self so that's a really interesting phrase this idea of authentic self it's mm -hmm. certainly um very fashionable to be talking about finding your authentic self mm. or seeking it or being able to live it or whatever. Or taking it to work, which seems a very strange thing right. to do. Right. <laughs> leave that at home. Yeah, don't do that. Um, <laughs> what is your experience of that? What do, I mean, because I, I will add that, you know, you work at Google. You yeah. know, you work in an industry that has lionised this idea of authenticity when, when um, applied to oneself. How do you navigate that? Um, what, like a personal level? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't. I mean, I don't have a sense of authentic self. I have self, I have selves, like I have a medical kind of, if, if, if you're comfortable with the pathology, like, and I think I am comfortable with the pathology of the, of identity. It's like, I don't think people tend to, tend to go, are you sure when someone says they have, my doctor tells me I have cancer. So I'm not very keen on people saying, are you sure when my doctor's, um, repeatedly over the course of several years explain that I have a dissociative identity disorder that um, means that I have a number of selves and that I move between those. Um, it's taken me two years to get all of us beyond the point of challenging that, which I'm sure has been very boring for my doctors. And then you have this moment, amazing moment of, of belief, like a faith moment where you have to go, okay, I believe in you all. Um, I, I believe in the, my different parts that will, will turn up. Um, it's deeply frustrating when people don't share my belief, as I'm sure it is for anyone of religion. Like that amazing kind of come to Jesus moment where it's like, no, I believe. When we talk about the body, that sense of acknowledging and accepting and believing in, in your illness changes more and more the more abstract it gets. Like when you cut off a finger, you have no issues with acknowledging, accepting and believing that that has happened. When you break a bone or when you break something that sort of hurts but might not, when you have a strange blood disorder, you kind of acknowledge it, you'll accept it, but it's really hard to believe that it's there because you never see it. When you have like depression or things like that, not only do you not believe it, you go back and forth and so does everyone around you. I grew up a trans queer kid in a world where, in the UK in the 90s and the 80s and 90s, where it was illegal for the teachers to talk about sexuality beyond heterosexuality. This thing called Section 28, a shocking piece of um, legislation. There was no internet for me to discover. I was in a small Kentish town. There was no other for me to see. 
And so all I got were my wonderful parents who were wonderful and, and science books. Mm. I, used to, I used to read Our Bodies Ourselves a lot. It's like my Bible. <laughs> what were you looking for? Someone like me. Mm. Um, they weren't really there because they weren't seen either. But So you had a diagnosis, you know, in the last couple of years of disassociative identity disorder, but you had a sense of that much sooner. Like most things you have a sense of. It's like I had a sense of being trans when I was three. I have a sense of having parts of my identity that exist for me that have been there since certainly 15, 16. I know parts of us who were there. Um, I have evidence, like physical evidence of behaviours of ours, which are not things that I know I did. And these are separate identities that have names and that yeah. have... well they do now we kind of allowed everyone to kind of like claim their names there was a long period of like this is just authenticating something which is a fabrication and you're just using it as an excuse all sorts of you will make all sorts of denials you create spaces in which you are safe even if that means transforming your identity literally as you walk through a door from being one safe entity to a different safe entity in this place i am this because i'm safe in this place, I'm this because I'm safe. None of these places am I genuine. None of these places am I, am I authentic. I have no authenticity, but I am, at least for me, in this time and place safe. And one of the most extraordinary things about this time and place is that we are allowing people to be more safe in themselves. Um... It's kind of wonderful. Some people, somewhere. Yeah. Well, me. Mm. I mean, I had to wait 40 years. I fight very hard for this, um, for, for parents of trans kids to be allowed to listen to their kids. What do you mean? Well, there's huge fights going on all around the world, especially about affirming trans children, like whether or not you should listen to them, whether or not you should pander to them. And certainly with trans parents, the parents of trans children, they get an awful lot of social pressure to normalise their kids' behaviour, to make their kids back to normal, even when they can see that it hurts their children to do that. That is society exerting pressure in the most clear and blunt and painful way. And it's not, and it is currently visible in a way that it used to be invisible. So I'm very keen on supporting those because for me, it's a very simple question. It's like, if you have a young child that may or may not be trans, you can listen to them, you can affirm them. <laughs> like, your choice is really, if you don't do that, they're going to be ill for the rest of their life, like I am ill. Mm. You will damage them and their brain in ways that you can't possibly imagine. So your choices are either have a fundamentally damaged transgender child or a transgender child. Mm. That's your choice as a parent and you have to resist. And yet, so we have to give them the support to listen to their children and that's really important because otherwise you end up with people like me or might like, I got a lovely story the other day and I really wanted to meet this person but they died um, of a wonderful trans woman who came out, I think she was like in her 80s. She, she came out in her 80s? She came out on her deathbed. Oh, crumbs. Because she had, she had no choice. She couldn't have come out before. She came out to her whole family about six or seven days before she died. It wasn't like a big secret that from her partner, I don't think. Mm -hmm. 
It was just a secret, a dark secret that couldn't be shared at any point through her life, at no point in her life, until right at the end. And I think that just kills me. Because mm. that's me, another 30 years earlier, is someone who would just have gone through my whole life without ever telling anyone. And maybe, maybe, but I don't think I would have ever told anyone. And that's why we think that this is a phenomenon. Because if your life is spent trying not to get killed, you, you see what happens to trans kids in India. We're working with this at the moment, like where they are expelled from their families, if not violently beaten. They have no security. They have no shelter. They have no legal privilege. There's nothing there. Like, it's not really that surprising that people will do anything to avoid that. What's amazing, actually, is that they do come out. Mm. How strong must that feeling be to sacrifice everything? And it's not as straightforward either. There's a real kind of myth in people looking at trans people that they were stuck in the wrong body for mm -hmm. their lives. And, and this never really applied to you, right? You didn't regard, like, you didn't have a terrible time as a boy. No, I had a lovely as time a man. as a boy. You know how easy it is to be a boy as a doddle? <laughs> <laughs> really easy. I was captain of the rugby team. I was head boy. Like, <laughs> super easy. It's like you can just breeze through that stuff. And there's all this privilege. And there is all this privilege. And the hardest thing over the last few years has been, has been this struggle to go, oh, but I need to find this authentic person. It's like, no. How long did it take you to get rid of the idea that you needed to find an authentic person? Well, I took an a really, really severe nervous breakdown to realise that there wasn't actually anything there. Mm. The most, the only thing I actually held on to at that point of going, there is nothing that is not constructed. Mm. There is nothing about me that is not in some way for others. Was this, this very strange sense of creativity which is that I would, I have like ideas about things that I want to do and they do not come from anywhere or for anyone. So those exist. Mm -hmm. Like my response to, to reality, that's authentic. That's it. Mm. <laughs> it's not like some Hildegard of Bingen, Bingen-esque kind of channel for the divine that's, no. that, that's producing your ideas. It is something that is you. Yeah, and it is a mirror to the world around us like it isn't that again it's no there's nothing i am not a crack through which light comes <laughs> <laughs> i'm just a rather kind of weird shaped mirror that reflects my world and actually in all my work it has been like that it's basically about multiplicity and about um or, or oversensitivity to audio and about sort of all of this kind of non-contiguous multilinear experiences you know through mm. my work like which i do with google um it's all about my experience, and it's so funny going, oh. <laughs> oh, I see oh, where that yeah. was. Yeah. Oh, it's not very clever at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to well, tell you how clever. I see the world. So, I mean, just, just, you know, to get back to the beginning of your career at Google, do you think it was because you were a super privileged white guy that you were able to walk into Google as a sort of temp and then, you know, within a very short period of time be um, leading a creative lab there? Mm, sort of. Um, okay, there's different things here. I was not allowed to do this. I think people kind of muddle this idea of privilege as in people give you things. It is not like you have a ticket to do things. Yeah, what confidence. You, what you do have is a confidence to do things and you have an expectation 
that you will step in to do things. So it's it's much more about the seas parting than um, the, the the myrrh and gold being given Handed to you. Sure, um, it's just that like the water is shallower. The the, the you know the the current is less strong. And, and you're probably a better swimmer because you've been taught how to swim, yeah. you know, from the moment you were born. You've yeah. been told you can swim that river. Yeah, as opposed to being told to do not go mm. do not go past Because you don't edge. know what's going you to happen if you snakes, get into that river. Sharks, anything mm. could happen. You mm. just stay there where you're safe. It is a really interesting problem and it is fascinating having seen it from both sides. So yeah, we could get into like the actual daily technicalities of like how there is advantage to being a boy. If you want to talk about technology, you can get into the, the advantages of having an environment which is predominantly male and thinks in predominantly male ways and therefore makes tools that are predominantly for men because they normalise. Not because they're bad people. They're not, it's not an evil empire moment. Um, but just because that's their normal. And, and it's very, very hard to, and we're finding this a lot, it's like you can tell them as much as you like about other normals. But until people understand it from their own perspective, and you can't give those moments, you can't give queer moments, you can't give mental health moments, you can't give race moments to people who have never experienced them and never will experience them. So when you see a straight, cis, white guy who has had a very normal life, you there's a certain amount of sympathy for the fact that they cannot possibly begin to imagine the disadvantages that are inherent. Mm. And those disadvantages exist because of normality, mm. <laughs> because of the curve, because of what is most common, because they're not allowed to be different. And, and actually, because we all help that by trying to hide our own differences. Why did you decide to transition? Um, I didn't. I didn't decide. There was no decision. Why did it happen when it did? Very good question. Um... I don't know, because I couldn't hold on, because I couldn't not. Um, it did mean destroying everything. I know it was very hard for my family. I know it is always hard for every family because you feel like someone's making a decision because it looks like they're making a decision, but they're probably not making a decision. I do remember going in and going, I don't need you to tell me that this is okay. I need you to fix it. My life is fine. <laughs> It was fine. Let's just go with fine, fine. Everyone knows what fine means. It was absolutely fine. You know, I loved the people in my family. I loved my wife. I loved my children. Like I loved my family. Everything was going very well. Good career. Um, it was fine. And um, I needed it fixed. And as with so many aspects of my life since then, you discover that um, fixing is not a not not an option. <laughs> Mm. There will be no fix for this. And actually, the more you accept that, the more you object to the idea that there should be a fix. Certainly within the autism community, when we talk about people with autism, it's like, oh, right, yeah, it's something that we can fix. Like, like I'm with transness. I'm not with trans. I am trans. I'm, I'm not with disability. I am disabled. All of those sorts of things. It's interesting, you know, because we talk about a transition, right? Like that's the word that we use yeah. for this, which... Well, that's just because we have a stupid notion of binary gender. Right, and, and that's what I was going to say. It, apply, it implies that you started in one mm. place and then you went through a process and then you came out yes. in another place. But that wasn't your experience of it at all, was it? No. 
I don't think, I mean, I, I actually like to point out how I use photographs because I can use one sixtieth of a second in time. And people, for some reason, are comfortable with that idea of like, here is one sixtieth of a second in 2013, and here is one sixtieth of a second in 2019. And look how astonishingly different they are. So clearly you just went from that second to that second. Mm. <laughs> um, and that's obviously not true. But this is but this is the thing. There's sort of two things playing here. At, at one point, there isn't a transition between binaries, but on the other hand, there also is a process mm -hmm. which you went through. Yeah, which is tough, by the way. Even if you spent your entire life studying it, it's really tough. Turns out I can run in heels. It turns out if you spend your entire kind of every private moment you have imagining you're wearing heels, actually wearing heels is actually not that tough. <laughs> But um, there are things which are very natural for me. Like, people were very surprised that I know which clothes I want to wear. And it's like, I have been studying clothes forever. I wanted to be a designer when I was seven until my dad noticed that I wanted to be a designer. Not that my dad is a bad person, but he encouraged me. And for me, that was an indicator of femininity. And I, I remember so 10, 11, who knows what time. But the clothes show, we used to watch the clothes show. I used to draw clothes all the time. So what I wanted to do. But when he noticed, I suddenly went, oh, Crikey, better hide that one. Mm, because, and that was it. And you, you hid it because it was a girl because thing. Because it's a girl thing. Mm. It was feminine. It was a thing that, like, no sign could be allowed. This is why so many trans people are in the military, by the way. For trans men, it's really an opportunity to kind of actually be male and be masculine and show those traits and not be judged for your femininity. For trans women, unfortunately, it's the opposite. It's like a, an attempt to pretend to prove yourself that you are a man. Mm. So you you took to the um to the sort of signifiers of mm. of femininity pretty well. How about the kind of you know having been socialized male all your life? How did learning how to be social as a woman? Play? I don't know, darling. You can tell me about that well, one. <laughs> I actually can probably. Yeah. I mean, I think you did pretty well, but I think that there were some bumps at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think I think there were moments where where you realised that. Women together do speak in different ways. Oh, yeah. um, would you not say? Oh, totally. Mm. No, I mean, like anyone. There's this amazing thing, which is actually, again, it's kind of a trope in, in, in trans narratives, which is that you also feel this great sense of grief at not having gone through the right childhood or your real. But the main thing is you haven't had like a decade of learning time to learn how to not how to get on, how to fit. And they're really subtle things oh, that you sad. don't Hell even subtle. think about when yeah. you're socialised into them. They're nonsense. It's like, yeah, I'm actually hitting those because I am very, like, I actually come from a much older generation. There's a generation coming through now who are there going, calling that stuff out, going, but it's nonsense. Mm. I mean, I used to do, use my boy card all the time and I used to use it very consciously, which was like every time I thought of something, I was like, this is nonsense. And I would put, call my boy card and i just go, oh, I didn't get it. And, um, so just, your boycott was like boycott was feigning like, ignorance like, about something oh, you couldn't stupid. be asked doing. Yeah, I'm walking off. Right. Um, or going, no, I'm not saying sorry. Like, nothing happened. <laughs> Go away. Yeah, sorry. Just storming off. And I love that we are challenging that notion completely because it doesn't make sense. If we understand that people, like gender is a performed thing, we perform our gender. Mm. That's what society requires us to do. So within that that spectrum, it's very wide. You can have incredibly masculine men. You can have incredibly feminine men. That's absolutely fine. You can have incredibly feminine women. You can have incredibly masculine women. 
That's even more fine. Women never... have even more space to it's perform. It's true. We do. But um, what isn't, what is very, very peculiar is that you have to choose one or the other. Mm. And we don't. If you understand that that is a spectrum, you're not going to put, it's not a spectrum, it's not, you wouldn't put the men and women next to each other. The masculine mask and the feminine femme would not be next to each other. They'd be at either end of a long spectrum. In the middle of that spectrum, the place where you would expect a cluster to be is a non-binary identity, where if you're a feminist, people are just equal. Mm. Or, or actually, even further, that gender ceases to become something that is factored into identity. Shouldn't be factored into identity. When you say, um, oh, I've got a friend called Sam, you'll meet them next week. Mm. And then I say, they've got red hair. <laughs> They're an engineer. They're quite tall. Your brain is screaming, yeah, but is this a boy Sam or a girl Sam? So you're waiting for me to use a universal indicator, mm -hmm. the he or the she. And the second you hear that he or she, you're going to bring a flood of extra information into who Sam is. Despite the fact that it means, you, like all of that is prejudice. Mm. You know nothing about Sam. All of it is prejudice. And we use le literally a letter to define that. How do you pronoun yourself? Oh, I use she, they. Mainly to confuse people. <laughs> I use they for fun, actually, because there are several of us. <laughs> I'm an identity well, Because disorder. you also use the first person plural quite a lot as I well. I use we a mm. lot. Mm. So, so in that sense, it's not the same as the, as the non-binary they. It's literally the fact that we talk about us and I've been very, I hope I have managed this whole piece without dropping into it. When I talk about broad views that my whole system can hold, then we talk about we. Mm -hmm. When I'm talking about this me, I will use the first person. Um, but yeah, so that's quite funny. So like all of these things, I just like language because it can be played with and it can be toyed with. And anyone who wants to kind of, anyone, these are not... These are structural things. Language is structure. And as you've pointed out before, there's a political dimension to choosing mm. to be they when you're trans. Yeah. It's highly political. So did you see that? Um, I think this is really interesting because it is sort of this, which is that Google's AI has just finally gone, okay, let's just not use men and women. Let's not use men and women. I didn't say that. So from now on, there's just people. It's like that thing, let's just not do it. And that is incredibly important because all we're really trying to do is reduce the bias in the machines based on all of these, these this information that's been provided which is biased mm. and we know it's biased against women as just as society's been like biased against women since it was it became obvious that men were stronger mm. um, and that women could be traded and um, overpowered. And, yeah, that yeah. they were they were stock basically. You, having lived a lot of your life as a straight guy, are now Ooh. very politically active as a queer trans yes. person. <laughs> I like to think I was quite active. I mean, there's a very interesting problem for allies, which is that you don't want to do this thing that we accuse allies of, of speaking for people, of getting in the way of people. So I've been working with young women for a long time, which also felt a bit creepy, but in retrospect, it's completely normal. Mm. And, and it's, very, it's a very strange kind of thing. You go, okay, that's fine. 
you didn't sleep with any of them. <laughs> it's fine. Stop. <laughs> like, it never happened. Even when you were young, you judge yourself against society's the feelings of what you will be, what you are trying to do. You have, may have these feelings very strongly, but you don't want to be like the, the more strongly you feel them, the less likely you are to actually act on them because you understand what it means to get in the way of the community. Second, you are in the community. It's really hard because you, you feel like you're fighting for yourself all the time and there's no one else. It's just being, it's just self-interest, right? Right. So you're protecting yourself, which and is then, in somehow, yeah. Funnily enough, one of the most wonderful things is about being old. It is not in my interests anymore. I did that. Mm. I'm like, a, I'm just shy of the trans woman on her deathbed. Every time I fight, I'm fighting for another generation. I'm fighting for kids. I'm fighting so that people will go through their lives without experiencing this. And yeah, it's annoying as hell when they turn up all queer and confident and privileged um, <laughs> and talk about how hard their life has been. <laughs> and you do get that a lot. You're like, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about Let how it was in my <laughs> day, kiddo. But at the same time, like, it's the only place that I've ever found myself where it's like, oh, right, I can now fight confidently as a member of that community and feel that it is not in my vested interest to get medical insurance fixed for trans people. It's in my community's interest. Mm. It's the same with autism. It's the same with suddenly it's no longer, suddenly it's possible to be an activist. Um, one of the things that you've done recently is um, get a trans flag emoji included yes. in the emoji menu. What does one have to do? Yeah, it's really important because of representation, because emoji is a language, because actually we're talking about language. And it, just as it's important that we use he and she, and that was really weird, and we spend a lot of time at Google trying to get that he-ness. You know when you go through a form and it's male first, female second? What that? Why? That's not alphabetical. Same with emojis. Like, they cannot be representation of one form without another. So it... it felt very important for me, not from a kind of personal interest point of view, but from that sense that you shouldn't have languages which erase sort of minority groups. And the reason it took four years, and it took four years, and they kept rejecting it, was because uh, we couldn't show them data. What wasn't, data did they want? They wanted data to prove that it would be useful, that it would be used. Oh, what, trans people would use it or anybody would use that it? Any, that it would be used. It was oh, a useful trans. thing. And like, so you'd have otters there because otters exist. There's five different kinds of boat because five different kinds of boat exist. And we're there going really up against a, a glass of white wine. It's like, no, we really are important. I mean, they only just included a blood emoji, which is meant to indicate menstruation and is, is really <laughs> like quite oblique. I, I missed it myself. No, it's coming. It'll, it'll hit, it'll oh, hit okay. in September. So. Is, it, is it what, a bloody tampon or something? No, no, actually it's just a... It's just, well, it could be if... The, <laughs> that, that, that would be clearer, I imagine. I know. Like, well, this is it. It's language. It's a language. That's what it's about. It's about the period. But how we will present it at the moment is a, is a form of language that is acceptable. One of the other diagnoses that you've received in the last little while is autism. Mm. Was that a surprise? No. <laughs> Actually, my, my um, partner, Nina, used to tell me that I was autistic and I did get tested as a, as a boy. And um, and and they said no, no, um, because I was face blind. So they were looking for correlation. So they were actually rather keen for me not to be autistic. So first of all, there was that bias, which is they didn't want me to be autistic in the first place. And the second point was like, you're actually using a whole load of of of, of those old fashioned indicators. So for twenty years, it was the only thing that I had over Nina where, where um, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was slightly crushing. <laughs> but apart from that, I think we both knew that that was. 
So what had shifted between the the, the, the non-diagnosis mm. back then and, and the positive diagnosis now? Um, they were using appropriate um, criteria mm-hmm. for um, diagnosis. What which, were they looking for? What do well, they look for? Of course, the diagnosis for, for women is very different. Oh, interesting. Like, again, hey, this is another thing. It's lovely to get back to this right at the end. You can see the difference. The reason autism is over, not over, but was diagnosed in men, was identified in men, especially Asperger's, especially kind of that form where there is an actual strange overconfidence and, and, and special interest in dinosaurs and trains and like that thing that we all know, the socially acceptable face of autism, um, which is um, so wrong on so many different levels. But this is, again, a thing which we are going to approach and we're going to talk about. We're going to be, allow people to understand that this is ex- an amazing fracturing of, of ways of understanding the world and is not in any sense an illness. <laughs> it's a great disorder at its more extreme levels. Like, it makes your life impossible at extreme levels. And that is, that's something that has to be acknowledged as well. It gets diagnosed in boys because they're free to show it. Mm. Turns out girls are quite good at masking stuff. Full stop. Don't. Lifetime of practice. Precisely. Mm. Early in your transition, you wrote an essay for Penguin um, Mm. called The Curiosity of Doubts, Mm. where you mounted an argument that um, that doubt, well, actually, this is a quote, doubt is at the heart of all forms of inquiry. Without doubt, we cannot progress. You've spoken about an entire life and career where there was no single line and no single identity. Is there anything at all that you're certain of? Mm, I have ideas that reflect the reality around me. That's literally the only one that I'm willing to buy. Anything else I'll like argue you on and say is third-party subjective, even if it's the whole world. And any scientists will go, yeah, that's just the best measurement of reality that we have. When you want a fact... Yeah, kind of, it's a fact. What's problem is dogma and certainty. And we are seeing what happens when people think that they are right and they are certain they are right and they are unwilling to listen or hear (laughs) or question their rightness. The most amazing thing about society is that we 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 believe in that, that confidence. Like a bit of our brain really, really wants there to be an answer. And they don't seem to accept, oh, no, there isn't one. It's this desire for things to be true or not true, black or white, male or female. This is not a thing. These aren't things. None none of that is. (laughs) But the idea, I think, the fear comes from this idea that if those things weren't true, then there would just be swirling chaos and where would we all be? I know. I know. It is. I mean, I quite like swirling chaos myself. (laughs) It is difficult. It is really difficult. And yeah, like we require a certain, we require boundaries. We require guardrails to move through life. Maybe that's the thing. Mm. We just got to be careful about where we put the rail. T, thank you so much for coming in and having this chat. It's been so much fun. T Uglow appeared at the annual Feminist Festival, All About Women. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Ideas at the House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.